Well, it's good to be back. Uh, I've had the last couple weeks off on vacation, and that was a really, really nice break. I want to say thank you to Pastor Angela, to Danny, to Lisa, who's on vacation now. We kind of like ships in a night uh, trade off here. Uh, but also to Matt Randalls and Phil Manili for uh, bringing the message the last couple weeks. Uh, I wouldn't be able to to relax like I was able to without all of their help. And a few photos. We, I, we did lots of stuff. I primarily was, our kids are in that season of life where they have their own schedules. And so like taking a summer vacation together is next to impossible. So I was around, around here a lot, but we took lots of little trips. We're in Cannon Beach. There's Corey. And uh, uh, the next photo is this really beautiful sunset. But if you'll notice the Disney-like um, apparition at the bottom, those are elk. Did you know there's elk in Cannon Beach? I wanted to break out my tree stand and like, yeah, are you kidding me? And they hopped into our yard, which was, which was pretty incredible until Jeff and Kelly's dog chased them away. But that's another story. Uh, the authorities are still after us. But then uh, we did lots of hiking. The next one, uh, Corey and I, we, took, uh, we celebrated our 20th anniversary this summer. And so we, did, we figured we would symbolize our our marriage by hiking 22 miles together, right? The journey. And so uh, some friends told us to go to Spectacle Lake, and so we hiked up there. It was really beautiful. And then this is our dog, Chip. We're on another hike, and he just, this is how Chip is. He's part mountain goat, so I spend most of my time, like, chasing after my dog on the way up, like, no, come back. No, really, come back. Um, But it was a very, very wonderful break. We're in the middle of our summer series from the biblical book of 1 Peter, and it's called The Good Life. And living the good life is how followers of Jesus live in a world that often seems like it's going the other way from God. And we define the good life, much as the Apostle Peter describes it, as the life we find in a relationship with Jesus. It's the life that God always intended us to live, a life full of love, joy, peace, contentment, purpose, adventure, and lots of meaningful relationships with family and friends. It's a way of life. And the way, as Matt Randalls joked about, reminded us a couple weeks ago when he spoke, um, you know, the way has, has actually been, that was like the first name for Christianity was the way. And then, you know, Star Wars picked up on that and started. But I love that they do that because in our world today, or at least, you know, in my world, I feel like that's kind of what is missing in following Jesus. You know, we, we understand the truth, and we understand the life that we can find in Jesus, and sometimes we're a little fuzzy on the way, and the way is what how you learn the way from being in community with other Christians, and how they negotiate those times in life where maybe it doesn't seem so good for me, but we can learn or we can be supported so much by others and say, well, how did you get through this? Or what are you? I mean, that's the way. Following Jesus is a way of life. And um, I did want to stop and just recognize that two weeks ago, Matt Randalls, uh, he was talking about a really hard passage, husbands and wives. Did you notice that he like serenaded his wife during that whole thing? Like he sang endless love. He just kind of like... He just kind of feathered that in, man. I was like, no way. He just... What are you going to say today? I, I, and yeah, no pressure. Jeez. Yeah, that was, that was... I mean, Phil and I, we were just like, oh, okay. 
Pro move, pro move, Matt. Um, but the way when we're, this life in Christ is inevitably going to cause tense, uh, tense moments for us because the way of Jesus isn't always the most intuitive way for us. You know, our souls are damaged. We need healing. We need redemption. Uh, and, uh, and just kind of figuring out, like, how, how do we navigate this world we live in sometimes isn't the most intuitive thing for us. And also, we as human beings are pack animals. We find safety in numbers. And so where is everybody else headed? We'll go that way. There are many moments in our faith where Jesus is calling us in a different direction. And we don't have that safety in numbers that we feel in other areas of our life. And so it can be kind of tough. I mean, it's okay for us to follow Jesus as long as we do that in our own individual silos, right? Nobody wants to rock the boat. Well, even though we're 2,000 years removed from the people that the Apostle Peter wrote to originally, we still face similar frustrations and questions and tensions about how, you know, we as Christians navigate this world that sometimes feels pretty hostile towards people like us. And the threat to the church is similar today as it was that long ago. I define church not as an institution or this organization, this thing that it's come to mean. I define church as like people, the group of people following Jesus in this time and in this place, in this locality. It's the body of Christ right here. And Peter was worried that 2,000 years ago, individuals' faith would be snuffed out or that it would just become some religious mishmash of, you know, Roman beliefs. He was really worried that the communal life of the church would cease and that followers of Jesus would become a historical footnote in the pages of history. I wonder how Peter would feel today. I kind of think he'd have a similar worry. I think that he would look at us, our life here in the United States, and he would worry that our faith is going to become a mishmash of broader American values. I think Peter would be worried that disunity, conflict, and a whole lot of ambivalence right now, eh. I think he would be worried that that's going to be the end of our communal life in Christ. A week ago, I read a, an, uh, an article in The Atlantic Jake Meter, and it actually was a book review. And the book doesn't come out until the end of August. But he was, had already read it and was kind of offering his thoughts on it. And it's a book written by Jim Davis, Michael Graham, called The Great Dechurching. I was like, oh, really? And the article was The Misunderstood Reasons Millions of Americans Stop Going to Church. So there's this huge, like, 7,000-person uh, sociological survey that was looking why people stopped attending church, you know, in the last decade or so. And, of course, uh, there's lots of really terrible things. Uh, abuse, corruption, uh, driven lots and lots of people away. But a much larger share of people have left for pretty benign reasons. They just kind of stopped going. And here's what Jake Meter says. He says, 
that the defining problem driving out most people who leave church in America is just how American life works in the 21st century. Contemporary America simply isn't set up to promote mutuality, care, or common life. Rather, it's designed to maximize individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. Like, whoa, you got my attention. Such a system leaves precious little time or energy for forms of community that don't contribute to one's own professional life or, as you get older, the professional prospects of your kids. Workism reigns in America. And because of it, community in America, religious community included, is a math problem that doesn't add up. I read that paragraph, you know, five times. I was like, yeah, that rings true for me. I, I see that. Workism reigns in America, and because of it, community, all community in America, religious community included, is a math problem that doesn't end up, or doesn't add up. But contemporary America simply isn't set up to promote mutuality, care, or common life. Those seem to be the things that everyone is looking for, amen? But just can't find it. And I say this to my family all the time, mostly while they're in the car because I have a captive audience. I'm like, I just don't understand why more people aren't turning to Christ. And the, and the tur like, what they seem to be looking for is right, is right here. This is in a life with Christ and our community life together. And yet, something seems to be off. And I wonder how we, as followers of Christ, are going to survive, or maybe even thrive. Well, Peter shared an answer to that more than 2,000 years ago. It has to do with the good life that we find in Jesus and the life we find together. Let me read it for you from 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So once we've discovered the good life in Christ, how can we continue living it? Well, step number one, Peter tells us, is live like the end is near. We love talking about the end. In fact, prior to the pandemic, dystopian, apocalyptic TV shows were all the rage, and then the COVID years happened, and it felt a little too real, right? And we realized, let's, let's, let's do some happier shows, or let's just change the subject here, because we're completely capable of destroying ourselves. We don't need the zombies. So what does Peter mean right here? The end is near. This was 2,000 years ago. You kind of missed the mark, I think, Peter, right? Right? 
Well, the end he's talking about is the end of time as we know it, but is it the end you and I have imagined? You know, all throughout the Bible, there's this thread. There's lots of threads in the Bible that move throughout Scripture, which is kind of amazing when they've had so many different authors over so many years. But there's this one thread that moves throughout Scripture, and the theme is Judgment Day. Uh, in biblical parlance, they actually the name for it is the Day of the Lord. Christians had another name for it. They called it the parousia. It's the second coming of Christ, which coincides with this end of time. And Christians believe that with the return of Jesus, um, God's going to usher in this new era. And that's about all that Christians can agree upon right there. All right? I mean, that's, that's where all, there's so many different interpretations and understandings understandings about how God is going to bring about the end of time. And I kind of look at it, you know, actually, I'd probably get a lot more people in church on a Sunday morning if I just spent a lot of time talking about that, right? Because everybody wants to know. Let's just roll out the books of Revelation and Daniel and Isaiah and a bunch of prophecies and we'll make a chart. But the, the weird thing is, the end of the Bible is, is just like the beginning. You know, in Genesis, the person who wrote Genesis, I'm going to take issue with when, if I get to heaven, when I get to heaven, I don't know, can I be, is that presumptuous that I say that? Because they didn't tell us enough. They didn't tell us how this happened. They didn't say how long it took or when it happened. All Genesis is seemingly wanting to tell us is what happened, who did it, and why. Well, the end is just like the beginning. There is not a lot about how it's going to happen. There's even less about when. But the Bible is real clear that it's going to happen. Who is bringing about the happening and why it's going to happen? And for us, all we need to know that is that Jesus is coming back. God will bring time to a close. And he'll judge all people for their deeds and misdeeds. That's a gulp. The good news for those of us who have faith in Jesus is that uh, Christ, for those of us in Christ, we don't have anything to fear. That's what the atonement of Jesus is for. It covers over all that sin in us. Uh, the other piece of good news is that, you know, God does see everything that happens, and he will hold everyone accountable. And sometimes, I don't know if that seems like a get-out-of-jail-free card when people are like, why is there so much evil in the world? How can there be a loving, and, and you know, how can God allow this all to happen? And, you know, that's a, that's a long discussion. Um, but, you know, God does care, and he's coming back someday to set the world straight like the way that he wanted it to be in the beginning. That matters. That's the day of the Lord. It's judgment day, the parousia. So why does Peter say it here? Well, he wants to give us some urgency, some motivation. He's basically saying, hey, stop procrastinating. You don't know when the end 
is going to finally come, either for you personally or for us all. And also, God is love. He showed it to us in his sacrifice on the cross. But you know, love isn't a passive thing. God does have boundaries. God is patient, but his patience isn't eternal. And that should make us kind of go, gulp. Peter's just saying that. Hey, remember, the end is near. Live that way. So, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Same sentence, same phrase, same verse. The best advice Peter can offer us for our prayer life is to remember that the end is near. And then he says, be sober and not drunk so that you can pray. Peter was a fisherman, remember. Sometimes he's super blunt, and when we put things into English, we kind of make it sound nice. Be clear and sober-minded. No, he's actually saying, be sober and not drunk so that you can pray. And what he means here, I, I, I mean, I don't know how you could make that any more clear um, other than he's just saying like, hey, wake up, pray. The end of all things is near. He's also talking to a group of people who were very rough around the edges. And he actually mentions right before this, like, hey, I know your former drinking buddies are giving you grief because you don't come out and party with them anymore. So what? You made the right choice. You're doing the right thing. You're headed in a new direction. That way of life is a dead end. It's just full of pain and regret. You know it. The end of all things is here. Be sober and not drunk so that you can pray. For us, this encouragement, I mean, I don't know how you receive that on a Sunday morning. Maybe it is the like, yeah. That kind of lifestyle just leads to a lot of pain and regret. And I don't have to experience that to know. Or maybe I have experienced that and I just need to head in a new direction. But even if the world shames you for following Christ and the decision you make that you feel like this is what the Holy Spirit or this is what Scripture has said and I'm going to do it, even if the world shames us, we know how this is going to play out in the end. So pray. Pray that God would give us strength in those moments. Pray that God would protect us especially from the slander and the gossip that people might spread about us. Pray that God, uh, pray for our friends, maybe our family members who are still lost, chasing after that dead-end way of life. Pray that God would open a door for us to introduce them to Christ. Pray. And above all, Peter continues in verse 8, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. You want to know how to get through tough times with other people? Love them. Peter says that really is the answer. Love. This is the fourth time Peter talks about loving others in his short little letter. In fact, he jumps back and forth. You know, there's lots of words in the Greek vocabulary for love. Peter uses a couple of them. Uh, Here's chapter 1, verse 22. He says, now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that 
you have sincere love, that's Philadelphia, that's like the brotherly, sisterly kind of familial love. Uh, And then he says, love, which is agapao, agape, that's unconditional love, it's a verb. Love them without conditions, deeply from the heart. Uh, Chapter 217, show proper respect for everyone. Love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Chapter 3, verse 8, finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. And now here in 4, verse 8, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Make no mistake, Peter is telling Christians to love one another as fellow brothers and sisters would love other Christians in God's family. And I just want to say, do I have to? Right? It's like Phil was sharing a week, a week ago about suffering. You know, most of the suffering has happened like after church meetings, I think was the joke that you made. Like I go home and I feel like there's this whispering campaign that's happening behind me. I mean, so often we feel wounded and hurt by other followers of Jesus. It just seems like it should never be. But this is a theme over and over and over again in the New Testament, maybe because God knew our own human nature. It starts with Jesus. He says in John, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you so that, so that you must love one another. By this, everyone should know that, or everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The Apostle Paul is more blunt, big surprise. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, we're called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you'll be destroyed by one another. Maybe that's why Peter tacks on this ending. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. You know, whenever we face big things in life, you know, transitions, moving, uh, maybe it's a season of grief or loss, uh, maybe it's a, a just stress and anxiety at work, maybe a pandemic, I don't know. Relationships get a little frayed, don't they? A little rough around the edges, a little stressed. I mean, there's no surprise in that. But loving each other deeply, what difference would that make? What difference would that make? It would make all the difference, wouldn't it? You know, Eugene Peterson puts this verse in another way. He says, love each other as if your life depended on it. You know, as much as I may like to hang on to and nurse grudges that other people have done to me in the past, what good does that really do? It doesn't do any good. You know, forgiveness is less about letting the other person off the hook and letting yourself off the hook so that that experience doesn't have to drag you around emotionally again and again. I mean, that's the start of healing. Love covering over a multitude of sins. I mean, that's a... That's a relationship. It's time spent with one another. 
And furthermore, if you're the one committing the wrong in this relationship, if you're the one causing the stress, if you're the one fraying the relationships, stop. Peter's words aren't meant to be a license for you to, you know, demand or expect the other person to keep forgiving you. No, the Bible is really clear about how that works. When you're aware of it, you own your mistakes, you say you're sorry, ask forgiveness, and you do better next time. Love covers over a multitude of sins. And so how do you keep living the good life? You live like the end is near, and you follow the best advice for your prayer life to be alert and so reminded, and to remember that love is always the answer. And for the sake of time, I'm going to wrap up our final three verses in less than two minutes. Are you ready? Buckle up. Maybe the most convicting phrase in this entire thing for me this last week has been the next verse, verse number nine. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. I wanted to complain after I read that phrase. (laughs) How do you do that, right? Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. And for Peter, it's not, we live in different worlds. I think of hospitality as something I do, you know, once or twice a year at Thanksgiving and major holidays. Peter, this was a church growth strategy. They would have people come through town, Christians, teachers, whoever, and the church was expected to feed and house them while they were there. You know how expensive that is? It was so bad that in the hundreds, okay, there's, there's letters, extra, you know, outside of the Bible, people are still writing letters. They actually set rules. There, this was happening so much. People were traveling from, that's how they stayed connected, it's how they knew what was going on, it's how they encouraged one another. Three days, you could stay for, you were expected to house that Christian worker for three days and send them with food on the fourth. If they were going to stay longer, they were supposed to get a job. <laughs> Not joking. And you think about Paul, the Apostle Paul, he's a tent maker, right? How many times have you hosted someone not an immediate family member for more than three days? I mean, that just doesn't happen, does it? That's a long time. And yet, that's what Peter is saying. Don't grumble about this. Just do it. We had friends, uh, when we lived in Bellingham, we had friends that had kids the same age, and I'll always remember the mom, she had this rule. So like, when kids would get in trouble, there'd be a fight, you know, and they'd have to apologize and say they're sorry. She would lay on her kid, not always, you know, but like when it was a fight with her kids or close friends, she would say, and don't do it until you have a happy heart. And she was this really quiet person anyway, but she would just lay down the hammer. She'd like, you have to have a happy heart. That's what Peter's saying. It's like, offer hospitality, but don't do it until you have a happy heart. Do it without grumbling. The rest of this passage is about serving one another through speaking the word of the Lord, through the strength that God provides. I mean, he's talking about building up the church. 
how on earth are we going to survive collectively, not just here but everywhere, if the world we live in makes us focus so much on our individual achievement that we're just constantly asking ourselves, what's in this for me? Why do I give up a, a morning of my week to go to church? This doesn't seem to be doing anything for me. It's not supposed to. It's so supposed to be doing things for others. And the non-intuitive way that God has made life work is when I serve others, it actually makes me feel good. That's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it for God, for His glory, forever and ever, amen. I'm doing it for my neighbor's good because I love them. They're made in God's image. He loves them, I love them. And that's how we survive this life that seems to be constantly pulling us apart, away from relationships and emphasizing the wrong stuff. So as we move out into our week, as we think about the town we live in, I mean, I get excited for this time of year because I, I'm the evangelist side of me. Like, there's new folks. Like, I want to shower hospitality on new folks. But also, there's the body of Christ hospitality. It's our connectedness. It's, it's the access that we're giving each one another in our time and schedules that is so, so so important. And if God's here to help us do this, we can. We can. So put on your Holy Spirit headsets this week. Uh, pay attention. Look around. Listen. Maybe there's someone you're sitting next to in church, no pressure, uh, that you're like, you know, let's just, we should just have lunch or coffee or something like that. Or maybe there's someone that God has put you on, the mind, on your mind. You're like, I need to reach out with them. I haven't connected with them for a while. Offer hospitality without grumbling. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we come before you right now. And even though these letters that we read in the Bible were written so long ago, they're so applicable to us. And Lord, I pray that as we end our time celebrating communion together with you and with one another, that we would sense your peace your joy, and your presence. Amen. Well, let me invite our worship team forward. And as they make their way down, let me share a passage of Scripture. Just as one body, though one, has many parts, but its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews, Greeks, slave, free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. This is what we prepare to celebrate this morning, unity, communion with each other and with God. Jesus Christ, our leader and savior, invites all who put their trust in him all who are truly sorry for their sins and want to be delivered from them, all who would walk in love with their neighbor and intend to live a new life, to share this meal together with him and with his body. So in preparation of doing that, I invite you to take a moment of silent confession and prayer right now.
God of grace, we thank you that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just, forgiving and purifying us from all unrighteousness. I receive your forgiveness now. I'd like to invite those that are helping to serve communion forward right now and um, how this works is in a moment I'll invite you forward and you can make a line and take a wafer which is the body of Christ symbolizing his body broken for you and you dip that wafer in the cup the blood of Christ shed on the cross for you and for me hear the words of institution on the night that our Lord was betrayed he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. <laughs> 